A reading from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hut are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up onto the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The word of the Lord. A reading from Second Peter. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory saying, This is my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come down from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will. But men and women, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Six days after Peter had acknowledged Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While Peter was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, 
Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. This is our last Sunday of the Epiphany, and the story of the Transfiguration traditionally is here to give us this image of Christ full of glory to get us through the next 40 days, right? Traditionally, these next 40 days are going to be a little bit dour and a little bit tough, and you might get tired and grow faint. So, sear this image of Jesus glorified in your mind. It'll all be worth it. And, and you know, that might be good. It might be good. But it's not doing that for me this year. I just have to be honest with you, right? Um, and, and maybe it's helpful um, to know when the people wrote, when they put the lectionary together, they presumed, I mean, they, they really did it for priests, presuming that we read the Bible all the time. So you didn't hear what comes first and what comes second today. And, and, and I want to let you know what comes next, right? The disciples have just had this image of Jesus glorified. You think, you would think they would be ready for Lent or whatever else. But in this story, they come down the mountain and they encounter a boy with an unclean spirit and they cannot help him at all. Even though they know who Jesus is, they cannot help this child who is suffering. And Jesus says... How long do I have to put up with you, you wicked and perverse generation? I mean, you know, I, somewhat disappointed, right, with the disciples, you, you could say, right? And it got me thinking, you know, transfiguration is one of those words that's not really quite transformation. And they're actually really different. In Greek, transfiguration means looks different, appears different. Transformation means chemical change right? The form, the substance, the stuff is different. And if you'll put up with me, I'd like to contrast those, because I can tell you from my own perspective, transfiguration is very, very rarely helpful for me as a disciple. Discipleship is really about being transformed. And it sort of goes back, and maybe we should talk a little bit about what these people are wanting out of Jesus. They see, they see this image, you know, and, and, and it looks really good. It, it looks so good that Peter is asked, can I make, in the words not dwelling, can I make a tabernacle for you? Right? Again, if you, if you know your biblical history, the ark, that's where God stood, used to be in a tabernacle, which was like a big tent, and they'd process it around. So Peter likes what he sees so much that he wants to build a tent for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And, and I want to tell you, when you read the Gospels real carefully, not even real carefully, if you just read them, the disciples seem to be really wrong about who Jesus is and what he came to do. You know, they, every time Jesus does something somewhat controversial, the disciples are the first ones saying, why are you doing that? Peter is the guy who right before this, you, and you know this story if you've been to church for more than six months, you know this story. 
Um, Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Moses, and some people say you're crazy. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, right? You know this story. And Jesus says, hey, blessed are you, Simon, right? Because God revealed that to you. Now, everybody, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get there, people are going to want to kill me. And Peter says, no, no, don't do that. Peter knew he was the Messiah, but what I was Peter looking for? Probably the same one we usually look for, the one that will give us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? The Messiah that will free us from government we don't like, will reduce our tax burden, um, etc., etc. Isn't that still the one we would like today? I think in this story, Peter sees Jesus light up and I'm afraid Peter gets blinded by the light. Peter sees in that light exactly what he wants to see instead of seeing the Jesus that's right in front of him. And I worry that that's the difference between being transfigured and being transformed. Transfiguration is about what we want to see. And very rarely in my life has that gone very well. In fact, I remember my first Episcopal sermon. I was living in Atlanta, and they had this, the, 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 the priest raised this to my attention. I never would have known this. You know, people talked about like, things in the city in the Episcopal church. It was amazing. And um, at the High Museum in Atlanta, there was something called the Innocence Project. Has anybody heard of this before? Uh, and, and what was interesting, you know, Innocence Project uses DNA testing to basically reverse convictions on people. And in the High Museum in Atlanta, what they'd done that particular season is, is they had photos of people um, who had been accused by eyewitnesses of perpetrating the crime, had later been freed by DNA testing, and then sometimes they'd found the real perpetrator, taken that person's picture, and put him side by side. Those people looked nothing alike. Nothing, except they were all black. That's transfiguration. They saw what they were afraid of. They saw what they wanted to see. I can tell you, it doesn't happen very much to me. It's happened about four times in my life I've been transfigured. One time I got off the bus in Nazareth, which is a 95% Arab community. I was in the wrong neighborhood, but at the age of 20, I didn't know, and I was riding public transportation, and I didn't speak Arabic, so I just got off. I was in the residential part. This was back in 2000, you know, when there was a lot of, well, the PLO was still going on, you know. I don't know that anything's better today. But there I was walking through the residential section with a friend of mine. We clearly did not belong there. You ever been somewhere you knew you didn't belong? There was about a 14-year-old boy, and his friend maybe was 12 or 13. We were in their neighborhood, and they knew. Oh, they, better than we did, we had no business being there. 
They whistled. And, um, you know, we sort of turned and saw them. And then one of them threw a rock. Uh, I didn't know if they meant to hit us or anything. You know, I didn't know that they meant that. But let me tell you, my walking pace really sped up. <laughs> and they followed us. And in that one moment, I mean, the whole episode lasted five or ten minutes before I was able to get to the convent, you know, <laughs> for I felt very safe in the convent. That's five or ten minutes for me. And there are people in the world and people in this country who spend much of every day living like that, transfigured, because they're women, or because they're Muslim, or because they have a different skin color, or a different education. That's what transfiguration looks like in my life. It's very uncomfortable. I imagine it is for you. Because the truth is, it's probably happened to all of us, even if it was just for five minutes. And oddly enough, I wonder in the story if Peter isn't ready to glorify it. And I wonder if instead of getting us ready, getting us ready, uh, to sustain us in Lent, this story isn't trying to set us up for Lent. If this story isn't here to say that transfiguration business didn't work well for the disciples because in the end, they couldn't do anything different. No, no. Lent becomes holy and transfiguration only works and glorifies God when we and other people are transformed. Our substance is changed. The problem with Peter, you see, and that's why God has to talk from heaven, is Peter saw the vision, but he didn't pay attention to Jesus. And that's why God said, listen to him. Listen to him, not to what you want to hear him say. Now, I'm tempted to say in my own life that I've had transfiguration happen really well a couple of times, but the truth is it really was transformative, and it was because... In the middle of seeing this vision, I also paid attention. So one of them is, oh golly, 15 years ago I met this woman, and golly, I sure saw the light of God shining out of her. Well, I saw light. It turns out it was God's light, I think, right? Um, there was nothing that lady could do wrong, you know. That's my wife, by the way. And, um, <laughs> and, and you know, being in love is really just like that, isn't it? And when she spoke, golly, She'd say, like, oh, such and such you're doing, that bothers me. And, uh, golly, I listened to her, and I tried to stop doing that stuff. And it, it, it continues to transform me. Not just because I see her as exalted, you know, because she reminds me that she's also her own person to be heard and listened to. And that's why we're still together, I think, because <laughs> I, I do that some of the time, you know? And, and I think that's really the difference, you see. The difference between transfiguration and transformation is when we're transformed, it's really about the other person and not just about me. And, you know, having kids is one of those things, and I'll just tell a story on my dad because he's not here, you know? And if he were here, then, then I wouldn't tell it. So that, there you go. Uh, it turns out that um, I really have never heard my dad use profanity. It also turns out 
especially when he got back from Vietnam, that um, that was pretty much like a conjunction for him, <laughs> profanity. And so the day my brother was born, who's three years older, my mom's told me, it turned off. It turned off. Because, I mean, how do you really know a baby, right? But my dad saw something in his son and wanted something different from his boys. And that was it. And 37 years later, haven't heard it. My mom continues to hear it. <laughs> but we never have. Now, you see, I think that's what transformation's about. And I think this incident might just be here ahead of Lent. Warning, I don't know, I think it's to encourage us to have not just another Lent, but to have a holy one. Because the truth is, traditional Lenten practices look a lot like transfiguration. I'm going to give up chocolate for Lent, because when I'm miserable, that makes God happy. I'm going to give up something I really like because I'll be miserable and mean to people and that'll glorify God and that's a Lent. <laughs> it is a Lent, right? It's the kind of Lent that's in your belly button, right? Instead, I think, I think the way that Lent becomes holy is when it's not about just a little thing but it's about, frankly, a healthy habit we should have been doing anyway. But for some reason, we've seen the light of God in ourselves or somebody else in a new way, and we've decided to listen, and we say, God, this habit matters, and I'm going to do something about it this Lent. Maybe chocolate or giving up wine or, or, or gluten or whatever you want to give up for Lent is, is all fine. I think it only works well, though, is if when you give something up and you fill it with something else. That Lent is less about giving things up and it's about making good trades, holy trades. So if you choose to give up chocolate, take the time that you normally spent with the chocolate and spend it with God or someone you don't know. That'd be a holy trade. If you give up coffee for Lent, take, <laughs> take Tylenol <laughs> and then... Take the money you would have spent on the coffee and the time you'd have spent on the coffee and the thought and invest it in a new habit that will be life-giving for you or somebody else. That's how we become transformed. We do stuff we should have been doing all along. And we've set this 40 days apart to do it. Now listen, that's in three days. And you may be thinking, Kali, I don't know if I can think of something in three days. Well, the good news is Lent is actually 47 days. The Sundays don't count. Did you know that? So, so you can start a week late and still hit your 40. <laughs> Beyond that, um, I just let you a little bit off here more. You know, according to the, 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 the cognitive research I've made, you actually don't need 21 days to make a neuropathway, not 40. So you, you've got three weeks. You can be very late. And all of this is saying is, if you choose something for Lent, choose carefully. God is not interested in our suffering just to suffer. God is interested in people having larger life, us and other people in the world. And if our suffering produces larger life, if it does, 
God might have something to do with it. But if suffering just produces suffering, give up suffering for Lent. It might be the holiest trade you make. You see, all of this stuff, you know, the other neat thing about transfiguration is Jesus represents the law and the prophets, right? And that's really neat. And really, what Jesus represents, right, is the gospel, which means good news. And this Lent will only be holy if it is good news for you and somebody else. My prayer is that we are transformed together this Lent and that the life we give here as a community continues to grow. Prayers as you discern how to make Lent holy the next couple of days.